We'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. One of the most harrowing fights within the famous Battle of the Bulge in World War II was near a small village in France named Bastogne. Having been ordered to hold the line, the American 101st Airborne Division ended up becoming completely surrounded by German forces. Refusing to surrender, these American forces were bombarded night and day with heavy artillery. Artillery that was tearing away trees, that was tearing away limbs, uh, was tearing away lives. And to make it worse, as these troops are surrounded, uh, it's December. This battle began December 16th. And they find themselves in the dead of winter. And because of major trouble in the Allied forces' supply lines, uh, this 101st Division was sorely lacking any, any resources. They were without rifles. Some of them were without rifles. Some of them went into battle with a, with a knife. Some of them went in with hardly any rounds to defend themselves. And to make matters worse, the weather was below freezing the night they went in. And the, night, the very night they went in, it began to snow. So these troops find themselves surrounded. They find themselves with little ammo. They find it snowing. It was so cold that these men, they try to dig in, try to dig their foxholes. And this one man accounts that it was solid ground for a foot. You would try to put your shovel in and it would just bounce off the solid earth. And these men are in the, in the forest, in the cold, and they're, they're literally sleeping on the ground. In fact, so un- unprepared were they that they went in with their, their spring coats. They had no winter boots, no winter coats. They had no sleeping bags. They're fighting a war, and they're sleeping on frozen ground. Little food, little possibility of sleep. It was so cold that many of these men ended up losing their toes. Many of them got what was called trench foot, where their feet were so constantly, continuously wet. And then as the, the heat of their feet would thaw the ice, then it would get freeze at night and it would fr- frostbite their toes and their, their toes would fall off. Men would take off their boots and their toes would come off of their shoes. Some men would just literally lose their feet because of the cold. But one of the most tragic events And happenings of all was when the morning soldiers would go to relieve the soldiers who had been on the night watch. And the soldiers would leave their foxholes, leave their tarps, and they would go to relieve uh, their fellow soldiers. And they would come upon them and sometimes come upon them finding that those men had frozen to death during the night. That these soldiers had dug in, they were on the front lines, they were in their foxholes, only to freeze to death while they were waiting for the German attack. Well, these men, they said that it would have been so much better for them if they just could have been on the offensive. If they just could have been moving forward. Even though it was freezing cold, if they just could have been walking, getting some warmth from from body heat, just to get warm from walking and moving from village to village, they would have been far better off than if they would have had to just hunker down and stay on the defensive. Well, the Church of Christ, in some ways, is, faces the same, same issues. It's much better for the church, if you will, to be on the move. It's much better, if you will, for our church to be moving forward, fighting our spiritual battle on the offensive and not simply the defensive. 
The Christian church finds itself in the midst of a spiritual battle, a war, which we know is not against flesh and blood, not against Nazis, not against fascists, but against spiritual forces of greater influence who wield weapons of greater destruction and who war for a kingdom of greater worth. But as we seek to win the war through many skirmishes and battles, there are times when as a church we find ourselves in a sort of spiritual bastone. We find that the opposition is so fierce and the enemy so strong that we're put on the defensive. And we find ourselves at times unable to, if you will, press forward in advance, but just having been called to hold the line. And it's during these times of holding the line where the temperature of the church can drop. The temperature of the world can come in and kind of freeze us up a little bit. Where the danger becomes not just simply holding the line, but staying warm, staying alive. It was during these times where we wish that we were more equipped and prepared for the cold. Well, this morning we look at a text that leads us to and reminds us that even when we have to hold the line, and even when it gets cold, that there is a, a future hope. There is a, a present hope of future reward that will motivate us, despite the difficulties, despite the trials, despite the hardships of this life. There is a hope that the, the Bible promises to us that is so great and so mighty that it warms the soul, it saws the heart, it, it thaws the heart, and it thaws the mind of the believer, enabling him to press on, enabling his heart to be warmed, that he might be prepared for battle. I direct us this morning to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read for you verses uh, 3 through 8. Apostle Paul writes, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us, of your love in the Spirit. Well, I have a definite main article, main point I want to get to this morning. But before we do that, we need to study the background and study, uh, study these surrounding verses. In verse 3, we see Paul giving thanks, thanking God for the qualities of the faith that is evident among these saints. We see in verse 4 uh, the priority of their faith in Christ. That the Colossians were a, a group of individuals who had been gripped by the clarity of the gospel. They had put their faith in Christ. They put their faith in a Savior, as was said to us earlier this morning, whose mercy far outseeds our ability to sin. The gospel tells us there is far more power in the cross than there is sinfulness in us. It does not undermine the extent of our sin. It does not undermine the extent of the wickedness and depravity that dwells in us. But for men and women who are consumed with their own guilt and consumed with their own sinfulness, the cross says that its power is greater than your sin. Its capacity to save is greater than our capacity to destroy. 
that there is more infinite power and mercy and potency stored up in the cross of Jesus Christ than there is stored up in the most vile of sinners. And Apostle Paul says that when these Colossians, these pagans, these heathens, when they looked to the cross, they saw that. That glorious cross emblazoned their own hearts. It revealed to them their sinfulness. And yet the power of the gospel told them that in a million years they cannot out the cross. That one ounce of the blood of Christ is able to cleanse a multitude of sinners. It is able to cleanse all of our hearts. And so these Colossians had by faith looked to that gospel and were saved. Let me make this note here. They were saved not by their faith, but by the power of the gospel. It was not their faith as if it was a work. It was not their faith itself as if you've got to believe yourself into the kingdom of God. But it was their faith in the sufficiency and the power of the cross. That the Colossians had come to you and said, this is where the power is. And having put their faith in Jesus Christ and His sufficiency, these believers became marked by clear evidences of belief. We see first and foremost, their faith manifests itself in their love for all the saints. Colossians Church was manifest by men and women who loved, that is agape, self-sacrificing, self-effacing love for the encouragement and gratitude and joy of others. The cross of Christ, the gospel in the church, it is supernatural. The love which exudes in the church, it is a supernatural cross-empowered love. James was sharing about uh, member interviews yesterday. It was a great joy. All these members coming and, you know, we asked them, how can we encourage you? And they're like, you know, we're already so encouraged. The church is, their love overwhelms us. People are, people are coming to our houses that we don't even know giving us meals. People are coming to our houses that don't have jobs and they're giving meals to us. People are coming and, and spending time with us. And on Sundays, the fellowship, you know, people are asking me how I'm doing and praying for me and asking my prayer requests. And the next week, we're asking up, following up, you know, how, how are you doing? I've been praying for you. As one sister, I hope she doesn't mind I share this, but she was telling us that she grew up in somewhat of a legalistic church where the standard of godliness wasn't measured by your heart, but it was measured by like your externals, like your appearance. And she was saying that a godly woman was a woman who wore a skirt that went down to her ankles. It was a woman who, whose blouse always went down to her wrists. And the ungodly women were marked by wearing jeans. And she was saying, like, fellowship on Sundays was, was uh, talking about such and such a woman. I saw this girl wearing jeans. That was what their fellowship was. It was talking about these externals. It was talking about these other things. And she says when she came to Cornerstone, she was just blown away by this church full of, of godly women. This church full of women who are pursuing Christ, who are pious, who are coming up to her and asking her how her walk with God is, and who are telling her their own sinfulness. They're saying, I'll pray for you, will you pray for me? And she said, I was, I was blown away by the godliness of these women. And some of them were even wearing jeans, right? <laughs> godliness, Christian love, it exudes not you know, from the outer skin, but from the inner heart. 
that the gospel is poured out in the church and it's poured out through our lips, poured out through our actions, poured out in the way we love saints. We can step back and humbly boast, humbly give thanks to God. As Apostle Paul gave thanks for the Colossians. The leaders can give thanks to God because we see the gospel exuding from your pores. We see Christian love. And it's not just, you know, me and not just James, not just Bob, like boasting, but it's other men and women who have come in from other congregations and come here and say, I smell Christ. I see Christ. I feel the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That is what Paul was giving thanks for. As already alluded to, Paul tells us the source of this radical transformation. In verse 5, he gives us the reason why that was happening to them. And he gives us the reason why it's happening to us. Yes, it's faith in Christ. Yes, it's the gospel. But he unfolds to us something that motivates this kind of radical love. In verse 5, he says, it is the hope laid up for them in heaven. This hope which came from a message which they had previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. It is the, because of the gospel that the Colossian church had become so loving. But keep going in verse 6. He speaks of this gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Understand what Paul is uh, talking up here. The phrase in verse 5, the gospel, right? Is the gospel in verse 6 where this description of of what what the gospel is doing. It went out to the Colossians, Paul says, just as it to the rest of the world. It's spreading forth, spreading forth by the mouths of men and women. And then Paul says that this gospel was, was bearing fruit. What does that mean? What does it mean the gospel is bearing fruit? Well, the, the particular fruit he's talking about here is the fruit of salvation. It's the power, it's the gospel going forth, not just being heralded, but drawing sinners, saving sinners, regenerating sinners, and making them Christians, making them believers. Paul says that this gospel was doing that particularly among the Colossians. And he says that is doing that even it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So what does this mean? It means that when the gospel came, Colossians, and the Colossians church was established and built up. That the gospel didn't just stay. That the Colossian church, if you will, didn't hide their light under the bushel. They didn't put their hands over the flame. They didn't turn off the light. Or they didn't put uh, black paper over all the windows so the light wasn't shining out. Paul says that the gospel, when it was brought to the Colossians, kept spreading. It kept going forth. And it kept increasing the members. It kept increasing in number among the Colossians. Because the Colossians were faithfully living out and preaching the gospel. So this morning, we're going to look at what fuels this? What ultimately marks, you know, a mature church, a growing church, is those two things. Love for the saints, love for the sinners. Love inside here, 
and love outside these walls. Now, later on, Paul says in verse 10, he prays and he, he exhorts elsewhere in other epistles that we are to be those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I like to, uh, I like to take walks at night sometimes, you know, if the kids go down, you know, give Amy time to rest. And I like to go walking, you know, just around Downey uh, by myself, just time to pray, you know, just walk and pray. And it was, I think, two weeks ago I was praying late at night walking. And this phrase, that verse came to my mind, you know, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as I was praying, I was struck by the just profundity of such a command. You guys walk, you guys, if you've been to Yosemite, you know, you, you see El Capitan. And you, and you look up at the sheer magnitude of it. And you think of men who are like actually climb it or go up the face of that. Well, Paul says that we're, our lives are to, to be a magnifier of the power of the gospel, of the power of the cross. In some sense, we could say there's nothing more exasperating than for the Bible to tell us that our lives got to match the power of the gospel. The weightiness of the cross. That our life is to not just be, I'm saved for myself. I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. But that how we live our life, Paul says, is to show people how powerful the gospel is. How much force is inside the cross. How are we going to do that? How can we live that kind of life? I'll steal James's thunder here, but First time I heard James preach when he was in Spokane, he, he shared this testimony. I mean, he shared this uh, illustration. And it's a good illustration. You know, remember, those, remember that power team? Right? Christian power team on TBN? Those guys walk out and they have biceps as big as my waist. You know, and they're, they're, they're preaching the gospel and they're telling you, you know, how powerful God is. And then they get out that Los Angeles phone book, you know, it's like five inches thick, and they rip it with their bare hands. And then they get the handcuffs out, they put the handcuffs, and they rip those handcuffs apart with those 18-inch biceps. And they're doing these incredible things. And everyone's like, these guys are strong. And, you know, James is saying, those guys aren't, you know, that's not supernatural. It's those biceps. It's those big, hurricane 18-inch guns. What's supernatural, okay, I'm going to pick on somebody. Right. Okay. Some brother, brother, I love you. Okay. Ryan, I love you. Okay. What's supernatural is if Ryan Baconis takes the Los Angeles phone book and he tears it with his own bare hands. Because we say that is not Ryan. That is a supernatural force. That is a supernatural power. That's what the gospel is. That's what it is to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not, it doesn't leave us looking at a, a sheer wall saying, I can't do it. It leaves you looking at that saying, I can live this life because Christ in me. Because of the power of the gospel. Because of the power of the cross. Because it is so storing. Because it is so incredibly empowering. It frees you from sin. It, it urges you and thrusts you to live a life of holiness and godliness. Where the world looks upon you and says, where is that power coming from? Where is that force coming from? Or John Piper said that the greatest ethical dilemma for a believer is to live his life in such a way that the world looks at you and doesn't give praise to you but gives praise to God. 
where your life is so empowered and so, so changed from the rest of the world that people look at you and say, how can you do that? How can you say no to such things? How can you pursue holiness? How can you have such joy? And we say, it's the gospel. It's the, it's the cross. So we step back. How can a church love this way? How can a church sacrifice themselves for each other? We have, we have talked, we talked during you know, our leadership time, and we see that our heart of evangelism is, like, it's, it's waning in some ways. We see like our offensive is like somewhat waning. And, you know, our first response maybe would be, we've got to fix something. We've got to add some more programs. We have to, more OC team. We've got to raise up more missionaries. We've got to start more campus ministries. We've got to do more evangelism. But I would argue, and we would agree, that our, what we need to do first is take a long look at the gospel. And yet not just simply the gospel this morning, brothers and sisters, but even, even more, not just looking at the past and what the gospel has done, but looking at the future of what the gospel brings. Because the Apostle Paul, he says in verse 5, they were loving the saints and they were loving sinners because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's what he says in verse 5. Because. Why are you loving this way? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of this future treasure that is going to be given to us. It is so incredible. It is so good that it causes people to live this kind of life. And so what I want to do now is give you reasons why you must set your gaze upon, the, upon this future, upon this hope that is laid up for us in heaven. I want to fix your gaze and, and you know, I want you to walk out of the service with a kink in your neck because you're looking up. I want to turn your hearts, not just to the cross in the past, but what, to the, what the cross brings to us in the future. Not just forgiveness of sins and justification, but glorification in the presence of Christ forever. So, I don't know how many of these reasons we'll get through, but I want to give you reasons why you must set your gaze upon this future hope. Present hope, but future, future givings. First off, hope is where your heart is. Hope is where your heart is. Jesus Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you are holding on to now will be in your hands in the future. If you are holding on to Christ, you will completely lay a hold of Him in the end. If you are holding on to this world, in the end you will be holding dust. Now, we've heard it said, right? Remember those no fear shirts? You know, can't take it with you when you die, or, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't know, whatever, whatever they mean, but. You can't take it with you. That's, that's what I'm getting at. You can't take it with you. But what if, what if you can? What if you can take it with you? What if you do take it with you? What if what you're holding in your heart, what you're gripping in your mind when you die, goes with you and you stand before God, and you're holding that at the judgment seat of Christ? 
if, if you died, right, we ask, we ask people this, if you died today, where would you go? If you died today, what would you be holding on before Christ? Are you holding on to money? Hold on to possessions? It would be a sad thing right, to die extremely wealthy and to take all that American money with Lincolns and Washingtons and uh, Jacksons, right? And you stand before Jesus Christ with that U.S. currency. And you stand before God. And you're, he says, what are you going to buy with that? We deal with gold here. Or you stand before God with all those electronics. And God says, there's no outlets here. Or whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is I'm holding on to, it's worthless in heaven. What's valuable is Christ. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you hold on to in this life, you're going to take it with you in the next. What you're seeking satisfaction in in this world will be rewarded in the next. So Paul says in Romans 2, 7 through 8, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. In other words, if the Christian life is a game, the goal is to die with the least amount of points. You want to be holding on to nothing at the end except for Christ. Christ said, blessed are the poor. In Matthew, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, he just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who, who release their grip on the things of this world and lay hold of Christ. Um, this is a youthful sermon today, so I understand. Youthful, it's brash, so my illustrations are youthful and brash, right? but it works. Right? It's easy to hunt monkeys. In the jungle, people hunt monkeys, and they get a gourd. And they hollow the gourd out, and they, they make a hole in that gourd just big enough for a little monkey paw to go in. And they take that gourd, and they, they hang it out, and they put in that gourd a, a little shiny trinket, right? some, some shiny that's just worth, worthless. And that little monkey comes along, and he puts his little monkey paw in the gourd, and he grabs hold of the trinket. The only problem is that hole is big enough to put an empty paw in, but not big enough to pull a full paw out. So for that monkey to get his hand out, he's got to let go of his trinket. Well, it doesn't sound like much of a trap. But that hunter, he comes out from behind the bush, and that little monkey is holding on to his trinket. And he sees the hunter, and he knows the club's coming, but he won't let go. He's so gripped by his little trinket, by his little plastic, that he holds onto it with dear life. And the hunter brings his club, you know, and to the G version is, little monkey goes bye-bye. Right? <laughs> little monkey's taken out. Because he can't let go of his trinket. He can't let go of that treasure. Well, the gospel rescues us by laying less, having us lay hold of Christ. The gospel causes us to let go of the trinket, to let go of the, the shiny thing, and to lay hold of Jesus Christ, who, if you will, rescues us from the hunter Satan. 
we lay hold of these, the trinkets of this world, that we may lay hold of the riches of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, your hope is in heaven. It's that hope that allows us to let go. It doesn't mean that we sell everything we have. What's the issue of the heart? Blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are those who are not holding on to things of the tight grip in this world. And we're able to do that by fixing our hope, this future hope, which will reward us with infinite riches and joy in Christ. Secondly, hope in the future produces faithfulness in the present. Hope in the future produces faithfulness in the present. Let me put it another way. What we hope in now results in what we work for now. What we hope for now results in what we work for now. Okay, sounds similar to the last one, but it's unique. There are men who have laid down their lives for all sorts of things, right? Men have laid down their lives for other men. Men have laid down their lives to try to gain a woman. Men have laid down their lives for, for money and for glory. And that was what their hope was in. Their hope was that in attaining that, that they would find what they were searching for. Well, likewise, a rock-solid hope in the eternity of being with Christ will result in incredible zeal in this present life. That's what happened with the Colossians. It was their being consumed with the future of being with Christ that led to present zeal. I've been trying to follow this workout program called CrossFit. Right? And James and I go on there and some other guys look at it's this intense workout, and it's brutal on your body. You know, for like one exercise, you, you do 400 meters straight of lunges, walking lunges. After that, you can't walk for two days. Another workout is you do 100, uh, in order for time, you do 100 pull-ups. When you finish that, you do 100 push-ups, then 100 sit-ups and 100 squats as fast as you can. After that, you can't get out of bed, right? And, you know, you do these exercises, and you, you, you thrash your body, and it works. Okay, it works. You're more fit. You're more able. You have more endurance. But the thing is, it lasts for like a week. If you don't do it again next week, you start shrinking up again. And you, you, you don't have endurance again. And you've got to constantly be going after this. And, and, and the value of CrossFit is like seven days max. But the gospel's different. The gospel, what you're laboring for, it's forever. You've got it forever. What you get from living for Jesus Christ, what you reap in saying no to this world and saying yes to Jesus, the, the return, the dividends is far greater. There's no, I'm not an accountant, but there, there's just, there's, the payoff's just much greater. The truth that future hope in Christ produces present zeal must cause us to have some healthy self-examination. What is the cause of the standstill in my life? Why is there little fruit in, in, in my life? For many, it may be because there's little future hope that they have or little present zeal. For the world, the thought of death brings fear and paralysis. But for the saint, the reality of death brings a flood of energy in life. The believer understands that he's laboring He's laboring to, to, to death. He's extinguishing his, his earthly body to prepare himself for the glorious body to come, for the glorious riches of Christ. 
The doctrine of hope teaches us that the mature saint can only live when he is ready to die. Say it again. The doctrine of hope teaches the mature saint. Teaches the saint that the mature saint can only live when he is ready to die. Finally, took Bob and Jane's recommendation and watched Band of Brothers. Right? Amy and I finished it last week. And a third episode, third episode called Caratan, it follows a paratrooper named Private Blythe. On D-Day, Private Blythe lands behind the enemy forces in Normandy, and he finds himself cut off from his troops, cut off from his division. He's all by himself. And bullets are flying all over him. Bombs are going off. Grenades are flying over his head. And he's, he's in utter panic. He's so afraid. Later on, he catches up with Easy Company. And the next day, finds himself in a firefight. And the same thing happens. He finds bullets going over his head. He finds grenades going off. He's so scared that he, he has temporary blindness. He goes back to the medics and he's lying there. His eyes are open. And they're, they're putting their hands in front of his face. He can't see anything. He, he's shaking uncontrollably. He's so afraid. They go out again. He jumps in a, in a foxhole and the same thing happens. Bullets are flying. Grenades are going off. And he's shaking uncontrollably. And all these bombs are going off. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. He's screaming and he's crying and he's shaking. And at the end, after the battle, he comes out. And he comes to his captain, Captain Spears. And he tells him he's so scared, he's so afraid. He tells him that since he's been in the war, he hasn't fired a single bullet at anybody. He's only cowered in his foxhole and and wept and screamed. Well, Captain Spears looks at Private Blythe and this is what he says. He says, Blythe, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. All war depends upon it. It It's the same for the gospel. It's the same for the Christian life. The sooner you and I understand that we're dead to this world and that we're not going home, so to speak, but we're going home. The sooner you reckon that, the sooner you'll start firing your gun. When you recognize that when you go to war, the goal is not to come home. The goal is to die for Christ. The goal is to give your life for the gospel to gain life in the next. Then you will fire every last round. You will preach to every last unbeliever. You will love every last saint. Because future hope produces zeal in this life. The Paul, Apostle Paul said, Philippians 1.21, To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is the believer's future mindset. Matthew 10.39, Christ said, He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. When, believe, when we believe that the kingdom we seek is not of this world, exiting it will be of little consequence. As soldiers for Christ, we must live as if we are not returning from the battlefield. We must recognize then that we are at war and that we're not going back. And when you do that, you resign your heart. The church will abound in loving saints and loving sinners.
Thirdly, hope in the future produces holiness in the present. Hope in the future produces holiness in the present. So take, take stock for a moment of your life. How much you've thought of holiness. How much you're pursuing holiness. How much you're laboring for holiness. And then now, think about holiness and then think about eschatology. Think about end times. Because I want to show you how the doctrine of end times is intricately intertwined with the doctrine of holiness. Now bear with me just for a moment as I read this quote from J.I. Packer. Just listen closely. Packer says that Christ is leading us through this world to a glory for which we are even now being prepared by the instilling of desire for it and the capacity to enjoy it. And that holiness is the high road to happiness. What does he mean? What he's saying is that the believer's future capacity to enjoy the pleasures of heaven are intricately dependent upon his present pursuit of holiness. So in other words, holiness is the high road to happiness. In other words, you cannot be happy if you are not holy. The more you pursue holiness, the more you will know happiness, both presently and in the life to come. It is because God is concerned with our true happiness that he places an infinite premium upon our holiness. Our Lord modeled this for us as well. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He pursued holiness. He laid down his life. Paul himself buffeted his body and he made it his slave. He vigorously pursued holiness lest he lay, he lost the happiness of heaven. What you sow now in holiness, you will reap in eternity in happiness. Saints who put present happiness over future holiness are eating jack-in-the-box on the way to Ruth's Chris. And when you get there, you're so full of hamburger that you can't enjoy the steak. It's like if we let Lydia just eat whatever she wanted. If we let Sophie and Lydia just control their own diet, they would fill themselves with snickerdoodles and Twix, you know, and they would eat the sugar cereal all the time with chocolate milk. And it would, it would taste so good going down. But you let them do that course for a week. Let them do that course for a month and for a year. And by that time they're 12 and 13, they're going to be, they're going to hate us. They would be so much more happier if they ate broccoli and never had any sugar. If we just gave them all the healthy food so that when she's 12, she feels so good. Her body is functioning. All of her organs are clean and her lungs are working and her heart is pumping. And we pursue health for, for how we feel. We, we pursue healthiness because of the results it gives us, because of how it makes us feel. And Paul tells us that we pursue the hope of heaven. We pursue holiness here so that we can know more joy in the future. That we can know our capacity, our power, our stomach is more emptied of this world. That we might be more filled with Christ. That's what Paul says in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is a present promise of future fulfillment. Our present pursuit of righteousness, our present pursuit of holiness, will result in future blessedness that must make our mouths water. And so Paul, he leaves this hope, this doctrine before us. He says, saints, look up. Look, remind yourselves of why you're living. Remind yourselves that this life is but a vapor. And that as you pursue holiness, as you buffet your body, as you cut off the fat, 
and you pursue that which is pure and pleasing in God's sight. You're preparing yourself for the joys of heaven. Sanctification is the preparation for joy. So empty your pockets. Cleanse yourself. Take that spiritual shower. Pursue holiness so that you're ready to reap the joy of future hope in Christ. Fourthly, think much of your hope in heaven. Thinking much of your hope in heaven will produce a much-needed eternal perspective. Thinking much of our future in heaven will produce a much-needed eternal perspective. I preach this uh, to myself. Because young people do not naturally long for heaven. And that's a, I think that's a true characteristic amongst young people. Young men and women don't naturally long for heaven. Because they don't naturally think about death. But the Bible tells us that death, and not you know, to be morbid, but death for the sake of the attainment of everlasting life. Death is our longing. Because death is the key, is the gateway, is the door by which this hope is no longer a hope, but it's a reality. And so thinking much of heaven prepares us, reminds us that we're going to die, that our life's going to expire, that what is more certain than us going to lunch after church is that we're going to die. What is more certain that we're going to go watch the Super Bowl? What is more certain that we're going to go to work on Monday? What is more certain that we're going to have our next birthday or next Christmas or see our kids graduate and see our kids get married and have grandkids? What is more certain than anything else in this life is that we're going to die. So James tells us to live your life in such a way where every time you make plans, you say, if the Lord wills. Every time you say, I'm getting married, if the Lord wills. Every time you say, we're having a baby, if the Lord wills. I'm not saying you say that externally, but internally you say that. The only thing you don't say if about is, I'm going to be with the Lord. What is absolutely certain for the believer is that he will be with the Lord. He will die to go be with Christ. Not if, but when. Are you to propose, are you to move to finish school or go on a trip? It is more sure that you will travel to heaven than complete any earthly thing on earth. It is because of the death, our death, that we qualify all our phrases with, if the Lord wills. There's a, right, we do, and we will do, more weddings at Cornerstone than we do funerals. Month after month, people, men and women, or young men getting, getting married, and we're doing these weddings. But, like, let's not be morbid, but it's a matter of time until one of us, 30-year-old, he, he dies. His life ends. And we're at his funeral or her funeral, and we're gathered around, and we're weeping that one such so young should, should leave our midst. And yet Paul says that we are like, we're not like those who weep as if we have no hope. We weep at the loss of life, but it's a temporal weeping. It's not an agony that that consumes us because we know that they have gone to a greater hope. 
what is it for us who are 30 to have lose one of us and then the rest of us live to 70? What is, what is that? What's another 40 years? It's like two men in a contest to hold their breath the longest. And one man holds his breath for 30 seconds. And the other man holds his breath for a minute. What's another 30 seconds? What's another 40 years? It's, it's a vapor. It's a half breath. And so the Bible says, live your life as if you're only going to inhale. Live your life as if you've got 30 seconds to hold your breath. Because our life is so short. And to cope with that reality, to cope with the pain of death, and to prepare us for it, God says, this death, painful as your sufferings might be in this life, as painful as it might be to lose a loved one, our hope is what comes afterwards. So that as a church we weep here, in heaven we all gather around, and we will look back when we wept, and we will say, we cried over spilt milk. Our tears were shed but for a moment, so that we might this joy might last for a lifetime. So let the gospel, let the cross produce in you an eternal perspective. Let it produce in you a hope where you look to the future and are preparing your own hearts and your own lives for that. Private Blythe began firing his gun when he realized his hope was not in returning to America. Saints, we too, we charge enemy lines. We will serve and live and love regardless of the cost or consequences. We will lay down our lives in sacrificial giving, serving and loving when we put our hope in life to come. I exhort much, but I, I remind you, this power is resident in this church. This power is present in the men and women here. There's a man who comes to our church occasionally. He's an unbeliever. He's very clear about that. Not a Christian. And not necessarily even seeking after Christ. I asked this man, like, you know, sir, can I ask you, like, what, what keeps you coming? What keeps you coming on Sunday? Like, you heard the gospel? You know. He said, you know, I've been to a lot of churches. I've been to other churches with my wife. I've seen a lot of other Christians. But I've never seen people, this many people in one place, who said they can't do anything without God. I've never seen people talk the way you guys talk. I've never seen people live the way you guys are living. And I'll tell you what. To me... There could be nothing more joyful for me to hear out of an unbeliever's mouth than for him to tell me that he sees the working of the gospel in this body of believers. There's great encouragement to know that the gospel is working in us, that we're a young church, that we need the preaching of the word to grow us and to sanctify us and to, to, to increase our zeal. But be encouraged that God's word is doing its work. So I only point you back and show you what the gospel was doing and what this eternal perspective was doing in the Colossians. Remind you and encourage you that it's doing that very work in our midst. But that will cause it, what will cause it to excel still more? What will cause us to love each other even more? And what will move us 
in our maybe complacency of, of reaching the lost with the gospel. It's not a pulling up of ourselves in the bootstrap, but it's going back to what that man sees in us, that we can't do anything apart from God. That it's looking again to what Jesus has done and looking again to what Jesus will do. Looking to the past and the sufficiency of the cross to wash away sins. Looking to the future, to the sufficiency of the cross to bring us home safely. And it's when we recognize we have nothing to lose in this life. We have nothing to lose in this world, but everything to gain in the next. That we will love the saints and that we'll love the sinners. So, look to this gospel. Look to this future hope. Daily, exercise yourself to say, I'm going to think about death. I'm going to think about firing my bullets. I'm going to think about shooting every last round of ammunition because this is my last this is my last shot. This is the last battle. Father, we thank you for the hope we have stored up for us in heaven. And we pray that Lord that the work of the gospel would produce in us eyes and hearts that are gazing upwards to be with Christ where He is, to let the gospel do its work in us, and that we would be a church whose work is because we're motivated by future reward, that we would empty our hands, Lord, of trinkets, that we would relinquish and release everything that will not be worth anything in heaven. Because, Lord, when we stand before You and we're holding on to Christ, it will be worth so much. Lord, let us pursue holiness now that we might know more of happiness in the future. Let us lay hold of Christ. Let us, be, let us continue to be laid hold of by Him. Oh Lord, draw us to Yourself more. Give us more zeal to pursue holiness. Give us more zeal to love each other. Give us more zeal, Lord, to plead with the lost that today is the day of salvation. Father, let the Gospel and let eternity grip our own hearts. And produce in us, O Lord, these characteristics. Let them abound in our midst. Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for what you would produce in us. In your name we pray. Amen.